Hey everyone, it's Matt from The Curbsiders. Wanted to welcome any new listeners we have and say thanks for returning to any old listeners. And for the first few minutes of tonight's show, you might notice that our audio is not up to our normal high quality standard. The, the rest of the episode after about the five to seven minute mark is our normal high quality audio. Please bear with us. You can skip the first five to seven minutes if you want, but I recommend you listen to it. There's some good picks of the week in there. Thanks, and enjoy the show. Ace is the space with the helpful endocrine. I got to fi- finish that one. You're trying to, you're trying to go like... <laughs> nope, it's solid gold. Leave it just as it is. <laughs> I just wanted to come up with like a meme for them. Welcome back to the Curbsiders. The- well, hello, Frank. <laughs> Hi, Ken. How are you? Uh, <laughs> we're going by middle names tonight. Nelson. That's right. Paul. I don't know it. Oh. Paul Nelson. Nelson. <laughs> this is a fun game. Paul, it's is that... William. <laughs> Paul, is that really your middle name, or is that just uh, something you said for the show? No, that is legitimately my middle name. Okay. That's good. Good to hear. So we all just have awesome middle names. <laughs> um, <laughs> all right. Strong. Yeah. So the Curbsiders, this is the internal medicine podcast that uses expert interviews to bring you clinical pearls and practice changing knowledge. I'm Dr. Matthew. Your brain hole. <laughs> I'm Dr. Matthew Watto here with my co-hosts, Dr. Stuart Brigham and Dr. Paul Williams. Hola, como estas? <laughs> hey guys, how are you? Doing great. How are you doing, Paul? Good, thanks. Well, I, I do want to read an email tonight uh, to start the show off here, guys. This is from Chris. He says, hey guys, my name is Chris and I am a geriatrician in private practice in California. I'm so happy to have discovered your podcast. I'm a podcast addict, but I have been disappointed with what was out there from Ooh. Wait, in, wait. in audio uh, format. Shots fired. <laughs> mm, I know. By Chris, mm. not by us. <laughs> I have nothing but the utmost respect for him. Uh, I all of these all of these institutions that Chris here is firing shots at, uh, I have tremendous respect yes. for. No, they know what they did. <laughs> that is that, that is his opinion, not ours. Uh, he said um, he basically says that a dull voice will put him to sleep. The dialogue and comedy keeps me focused and engaged. I would encourage you to continue to leave time for a little humor and recommendations for fun outside of medicine. I would mm. like to subscribe to the monthly newsletter. And he'd also like to support the podcast in any way possible. What can I do? And he wrote us a review. Uh, Chris, just sending us nice emails like this is a huge help. So thank you very much for reaching out and uh, and cutting down our competitors. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's quite true. <laughs> yeah. So Matt, what for fun outside of medicine? For fun outside of medicine. So yes, I, outside of medicine. I also like to listen to podcasts. So I think that brings us to picks of the week. Key music. <laughs> hmm. Wonderful. <laughs> Paul, would you like to go first with picks of the week? Sure, I'd be happy to. I actually, in terms of movies, I've had this run of just absolute garbage, and so I actually went out of my way to watch two movies that were at least recognized as good. Um, so again, I'm not breaking any new ground here, but I watched uh, Moonlight, the 2016 Barry Jenkins film. Um, uh, which I believe actually won the Academy Award for Best Picture. And then the night afterwards, I watched the 2015 
Lenny Abramson movie Room, uh, starring Brie Larson um, in a justifiably acclaimed performance. And they're both really, I mean, they're both great movies. They're worth watching just because I think they play with structure a little bit. And then also, if you want a fun double feature just to leave you emotionally devastated, um, that's that's a good one to pick. So I would recommend both Room and Moonlight if you've not had a chance to see them. I think they're both worth uh, searching out. I will not be watching either of those movies because uh, I am an emotional wimp and I don't want to put myself through that. But thank you. No, especially as a parent. I think if you watch Room, you'll just be a blithering pile of tears for probably the back hour. So I, I, would, I can't recommend it highly enough. And as a cat parent, how did you, how did you feel? <laughs> I was still pretty close to a blithering pile of tears anyway. <laughs> okay. I I was going to recommend this time out. Stuart, I'll let you go last. I don't know why, but I I, I was going to recommend. <laughs> I feel honored. Thank you. <laughs> I was going to recommend anything by the great Seth Godin. He is an author, blogger, teacher. He he has a great podcast called Startup School, which is now about five years old. It was released in, by, in 2012 on iTunes, but it's a great, it's about 15 or 16 mini episodes just kind of talking about anybody who is starting or running a business or any any kind of side projects that you have going on. He really just talks about uh, how you can do that and do it well. And a book of his that I really liked, there, well, there were two, Purple Cow and Lynchpin. And basically, he kind of has this knack, kind of like Malcolm Gladwell does, where he can take something that he can take something and tell it to you and make it seem so simple but he just has this way of seeing the world where he can take like really complicated topics and boil them down to simple things. So if you're at all interested in marketing or if or small business things like that, he's a great uh, a great person to read. Excellent, Stuart. What do you got? So my pick of the week is actually medical this time, surprisingly. So uh, I've had to pull up this article. You know, it's the first week of uh, academic year, so I've printed out this article a few times, uh, both to help dispose patients from the ER, but also to help to educate the residents that I work with. The first article, there, there's two of them. They work together. It's it's based on the Amplify trial that was initially published in the New England Journal in 2013, which was the oral apixaban for the treatment of acute venous thrombal embolism. There was a, a, a subgroup analysis that specifically looked at the uh, hospitalization rate and the risk for putting, putting patients on apixaban versus um, Coumadin for initial therapy and found that those patients who were initially placed on apixaban had a much shorter hospitalization stay when they were, if they were initially placed on apixaban. Uh, they didn't have to be admitted for this. And so the average hospitalization stay for those patients that were placed on apixaban for uh, PE was 0.57 days versus 1.01 days for those patients that were put on Coumadin. Um, with uh, I, I don't remember the actual number needed needed to, to treat. I had to go back and actually uh, take a look at that. But it, it was somewhere around the 60s range. So for every 60 some odd patients that you treated, you prevented one hospitalization. So having said that, uh, it's it, it's an effective initial treatment. It has uh, no increased risk versus Coumadin and. Uh, if you do a cost-benefit analysis, it actually can approach uh, significance for uh, decreased overall healthcare costs. Basically, by preventing hospitalization, you just send them home right. from the ER. Yeah, and and de- decreased utilization of INR clinics, uh, um, uh, D's to help manage the Coumadin dosing, things like that. Right, handouts about spinach, the huge. Yeah. <laughs> yes, exactly. Patients can eat vegetables. And, and- and compliance. Patients are traditionally, or not traditionally, but are typically more compliant with a medication that doesn't require them to alter their diet. 
Yeah, Coumadin is like the best cop, cop out if you hate vegetables. Uh, that's that's all I'll say. <laughs> I I do I think we should move on to to the main topic here, which is osteoporosis part two. We this this was an interview that I recorded at Ace with Dr. Colburn as my co-host. Sorry, Paul. And uh, he did great. He did he did great as always. And we the reason we wanted to do this is we had a little bit of leftover questions from from our previous discussion with Dr. Camacho from ACE. And this is a little bit more of a kind of high level or more advanced discussion. So if you, if you haven't heard our first, which was episode number 18 with Dr. Camacho, that's a very good overview of osteoporosis. We talk calcium and vitamin D there. And then on this one, we kind of review some of the stuff we did with Dr. Camacho and then get a little more in depth on checking things like bone markers. And after the episode, uh, after I recorded this episode, it, the American College of Physicians put down put out their osteoporosis guidelines, which differ a little bit from the ACE guidelines. So mm-hmm. after we come back from the interview, we'll be talking a little bit through that. I, I did reach back out to Dr. Hurley and Dr. Pesapolic, and they they gave me sort of AC, the ACE's response to ACP's recommendations. So we will have so those. Is there going to be a rebuttal of the rebuttal of the rebuttal? I think it will just go on forever. Yes, it was. It's an endless string of rebuttals. It's a regular Hatfield McCoy situation. <laughs> <laughs> okay, our first guest is Dr. Daniel Hurley. He is currently a vice president for ACE and a member of the ACE Executive Committee. He works at the Mayo Clinic, where he's he is an assistant professor of medicine. His primary clinical interests are in metabolic bone disease and nutrition in health and disease. He is the currently the president elect of ACE and we were thrilled to have him on the show and I think you'll very much enjoy our discussion with him. Our second guest, Dr. Rachel Pesa Pollock, is currently a clinical assistant professor in the Department of Endocrinology, Diabetes and Bone Disease at the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. She is a member of the ACE Board of Directors and is on the Guidelines Committee for ACE and helped write both the 2010 and 2016 ACE Postmenopausal Osteoporosis Guidelines. She has a special interest in metabolic bone disease and reproductive endocrine disorders. And as I said up front, we had quite an in-depth discussion on a little bit higher level on osteoporosis but uh, I know our audience is up to the up to the challenge here, and I think you'll find it really helpful for your practice. Welcome back to the Curbsiders. This is your host, Dr. Matthew Watto, here with my co-host for today, Dr. Jeffrey Colburn. Hey, I'm here. Jeff, thank you for taking the time out of your ACE meeting to to meet with us, and we have with us today. I'm going to try to get the names right, Dr. Rachel Pesapolic. Correct. Thanks for including me. And Dr. Daniel Hurley. Yes, I'm glad to be here. Who just revealed he's from South, from the South, South Dakota. And uh, we are going to start off, as we always do, asking you some questions so the audience can get to know you, which I, I didn't inform both of you about beforehand, but uh, you'll, it'll be okay, I promise. All right. So, uh, Dan, is it okay if I call you Dan for the interview? Yes, of course. In the hospital, we commonly give these one-liners when we're describing patients. So I'll give you my one-liner for myself. So I'm a 34-year-old male. I'm a husband and father of four. I'm an internal medicine nerd, which I'm proud of. And uh, I have very weird eating habits, and I like bad movies. Can you tell me, how would you describe yourself? 
So I'm a uh, farm boy from uh, the Midwest uh, who practices in the Midwest at an academic, academic institution. I'm from a large family. Uh, I love to uh, run outdoors, and I uh, love being with my family. Okay. And Rachel, same question to you. I am a New York born and raised endocrinologist with a focus on women's health. I have two children who keep me very busy. I love primarily sushi and a good egg white sandwich. Okay, great. And, and my next question that I always like to ask too, this, this show is about learning and mentorship is part of it. What is some of the best advice, Rachel, that you've received as a learner or as a teacher that, that you can pass on to the audience? I always follow the motto, when you see an opportunity, take it and then figure out how to make it work. Okay. Dan, same question to you. Uh, the best advice is that it's not about me. It's about the patient. And for those out there that are taking care of patients, they're all leaders. And to be a leader, you um, have to allow those that are around you to have a voice. And so you have to uh, listen to them. And uh, you saying it's not about you, that, that just reminds me, uh, we, t- we talked to Dr. Robert Centaur from University of Alabama. He said that as an educator, he was also saying it's, it's not about you. It's about, it's about the learner. So make sure they get their money's worth. So that, that kind of just reminds me, patients and learners, they need to get their money's worth. We can't be self-centered, something that uh, sometimes I struggle with, my wife will tell you. Um, okay, last question in this uh, getting to know you section. Dan, can you tell me something about yourself that we'll never forget? I am one of 16, brothers and sisters. I don't think you'll forget that. And if, uh, yeah. So uh, when, they, uh, when they need to, to call my name, I'm number nine. Okay, wow. Rachel? I don't know. Can you top that? Uh, <laughs> one of 17? I, I think that's going to be really hard to do, but I will say that... Many people think I look like somebody they know. So it's pretty typical that anywhere I go, I have random people come up to me and hug me, and I'm not their lookalike. A lot of doppelgangers. I, I have the same thing, I have to say. So we're, we're both, we, we both have that issue. Yeah. Well, that's, that's, uh, that's good. I think we have a pretty good sense of who you both are now. Uh, one yeah, of, you look like the guy from Rune 5, sorry to say. Rune five. Okay, well, that's. I'll take that as a compliment. Levine, Adam Levine. And what about me? <laughs> um, I don't know, but I would. I would definitely say you look very familiar. Familiar. But yeah, I'm a former New Yorker. Um, you know, in that Manhattan centric. You know, it's not heliocentric. It's Manhattan centric. I would definitely say like. I definitely have a look that. Yeah. Well, we. It's on the street of New York. Yeah, we and it's this just elevated sort of like wonderful thing. Yeah. Let's let's start off. We're going to be discussing osteoporosis and. I wanted to start off with maybe a case that can that we can kind of use as a jump-off point to talk about some of these issues with osteoporosis. And uh, so somebody somebody with osteoporosis comes into your office. Let's say uh, I can give you a it's a 66 year old uh, female patient with postmenopausal osteoporosis. She's just been diagnosed. Dan, how would you kind of explain to her what that is? Yeah, that's a common question that we get. And so I can expand upon that just a little bit. A a woman similar age that came to me, bone mineral density was in the osteopenia range, slightly low. 
and uh, she had a fracture. She fell and she had a wrist fracture. So she said, how could I have fractured? Because my bone density says I only have osteopenia. I don't have osteoporosis. And uh, the, the definition of osteoporosis is really bone quality to the point that puts one at risk of fracture. It doesn't have anything to do with bone density. Um, and so if a person fractures, it means the quality of bone is such for whatever reason. could be the size of the bone, could be the um, uh, bone turnover, the activity of the bone. It could be the density of the bone. But there's many things that go into bone quality, and bone density is just one. So if someone has a fragility fracture, which is a, a fracture that occurs from a fall from standing height, low-impact fracture, that would be osteoporosis irregardless of the bone density. In the absence of fracture, how do we predict risk? How do we predict risk for heart attack? We measure an LDL cholesterol. How do we predict risk for stroke? We measure a blood pressure. How do we predict risk for diabetes? We measure glucose. So in the absence of fracture, a good risk predictor is a bone mineral density. And we use standard deviations from peak bone mass at about age 30. We call that a T-score reference. And if the standard deviation is 2.5 standard deviations below that peak reference at age 30 or that T-score, that would be a risk for fracture. And we call that osteoporosis based upon bone density. And Rachel, I wanted you to comment a little bit on the, on the FRAX score and, and how that factors into this. How, how do you counsel patients on what that means? Right. So what you're bringing up is a FRAX score, which is a diagnostic tool that evaluates a 10-year probability of bone fracture risk. It was initially developed at Sheffield University by the World Health Organization. And what that does for us, it helps stratify patients that are within the osteopenia range. So recalling what Dan just mentioned regarding a T-score, a T-score between negative 1 and negative 2.4 is technically osteopenia range. However, we know that most fractures that occur actually occur to patients with osteopenia and not actually osteoporosis. So this is the area where we want to highlight what the risk of fracture is. And so what you can do is access the FRAX website and calculate your risk for a patient for fracture. And the treatment guidelines are if the risk of a hip fracture is above or equal to 3% over 10 years, or of a major fracture above or equal to 20%, then that's a fracture intervention when we recommend treatment. What you'll notice with the FRAX calculator is that it takes certain risk factors into account. For example, if you have a family history of a hip fracture in a parent, that's going to increase your own risk for a fracture significantly. Other factors such as rheumatoid arthritis, age take into account that risk. And we really are stressing that we want you to evaluate your patients with osteopenia because those are the patients that we're really worried about not being treated and not being um, guided in terms of how they should be monitored. So just to ask a clarifying question, can you run a FRAX score calculation on somebody that hasn't had a DEXA scan yet? Good question. And you can. You can actually calculate FRAX without actually having a T-score available. Well, once... Once we start to track this, if someone doesn't meet the treatment threshold, how often are you recommending that we, we follow the DEXA scan and recalculate a FRAX? That's a good question. I think it's important as you're seeing your patient to get a gestalt of what you think their risk for fracture is. If you're not meeting those treatment guidelines despite the FRAX calculation, but you anticipate that this is a fragile patient with a high risk for fracture, you're going to treat them anyway. 
I think it's reasonable to repeat a bone density scan in two years if somebody you're not concerned about or even maybe even less frequent. But if you have a high index for suspicion that this person may be at risk for losing bone, you may want to repeat that bone density scan in one to two years. If I could add to that too, Matthew, and that is uh, focusing on what Rachel said about who's at risk. So we know that women shortly after menopause can lose anywhere from 1% of their bone peer up to 5% peer because of loss of protective effect of estrogen. So where some guidelines would say if you have osteopenia, you don't have to check for five years, that person would be at a high risk. So I like to look at people as a jigsaw puzzle. How many pieces do I have to have before the picture becomes clear in terms of their risk? And an early postmenopausal woman you know, the bone density is just a smaller piece of that jigsaw puzzle, and I may want to get other factors. Uh, certainly use the fracs. Certainly think about getting a microbone turnover because that's been shown to increase risk of fracture. It's, it may not be something that you can get reimbursed on uh, their insurance policy, but it may help you in terms of fracture risk down the road and whether or not you want to check that bone density at one year, two year, or five year. You know what? You bring up a great point, which is a secondary evaluation for other causes of bone loss. And that's something that you can do very easily in your office, specifically looking at their calcium level, their vitamin D stores, PTH level. In the right situation, you may check them for multiple myeloma and celiac disease. How often or how practical practical do you think it is? Our audience is, is mostly primary care and uh, checking an N or C telopeptide. Are those easy to interpret? I think one's in the blood and one's in the urine. Is that? Yes, good question. And and bless all you primary care physicians out there that take care of these patients. Um, The best test right now today would be the uh, what's called a beta cross-lapse uh, C-telopeptide, or CTX for short. And it is a marker of collagen in the blood. And as the bone gets remodeled and removed, just like um, skin gets removed and replaced, if I scratch a skin, old bone gets removed. And as that bone gets removed, collagen is released. The amount of collagen in the blood, the amount of that CTX in the blood tells you how rapid the bone turnover is. And it just so happens that it's, it doesn't tell you if the person is going to fracture. It just tells you how active the bone is. But in general, for postmenopausal women, when that's high, it usually outstrips the bone formation, and we know that they're at risk. And, and just something I thought of, and, and Jeff, I, I see you want to have a question here, just as a follow-up. If, if someone's on therapy with a bisphosphonate, can you follow that? And, and like, let's say they're on Fosamax or Alendronate, and you're worried about oral absorption, can you follow that and make sure it goes down? Is that is that something that's been validated? Uh, I'm going to refer to what's called the FLEX study. There's other studies, Horizon study, FLEX study. The FLEX study was using alendronate. And uh, the bisphosphonate drugs, whether it's Fosamax or Actinel or Boniva, they're so potent that studies have shown that it always goes down. Okay. And so I don't tend to measure it. What I tend to follow is the... Um, bone mineral density. In fact, in that FLEX study, for women who were treated for five years versus 10 years and compared, so women on alendronate for five years and then placebo for five years versus women who took the alendronate for 10 years, the best predictor um, uh, was not the CTX, but the bone mineral density of the lumbar spine. And so a decline in the lumbar spine off of therapy or even during therapy would mean that we should think about other causes for bone loss. 
And uh, Dr. Hurley, you'd mentioned biomarkers that we can look at. Internists often see alkaline phosphatase as part of comprehensive metabolic panels. And of course, that's contributed to by the GI as well as bones. Um, is, is there any utility to looking at that at all? When the internists see alkaline phosphatase coming back, can you use that at all for anything? Well, if I, if I see a, a high elevated alkaline phosphatase, um, and let's just say it's an early postmenopausal woman, and the other liver function tests are normal. There's two things that come to mind. Um, since, as you mentioned, alkaline phosphatase is predominantly bone and liver, a little bit of intestine. But I'm thinking of two things. One, first of all, because it's so common, vitamin D deficiency. And secondly, increased bone turnover. Um, but I've seen patients with increased bone turnover that have normal alkaline phosphatase, and I've seen people with normal vitamin D with elevated alkaline phosphatase. So it's not the best screening test, but it's something I think about. Rachel, what do you think? I usually fractionate the isoenzymes once I have an elevated alkaline phosphatase to see if you can get a better assessment of where it's coming from. I do tend to use, um, and you can correct me if you're doing this too, um, when you have a patient on a drug holiday and you know that they're in- Increased risk for anti, you know, for increased risk for bone resorption. Occasionally, I'll follow some bone turnover markers, and as you see the anti-resorptive, the increased resorption occurring, that may be an indication to you that you may want to give them another dose. Do you use that clinically? I do actually, uh, and even though I said that the bone density was the best test to follow, and where I find it helpful is just on the reverse of what you said as well. I also use it for purposes you've mentioned, but on the reverse, patients will come to me and say, "Goodness, the bone density hasn't changed, or it's gone down a little bit, given the variability of the bone density measurement, a two percent error, one percent precision." And patients will say, "The drug's not working." And when I check a CTX marker and it's suppressed, I can say, no, back to that jigsaw puzzle. This is an important piece now of following your treatment. And even though the bone density hasn't changed or it may be um, fluctuating a little bit, that the marker says that the drug is working just fine and you can continue on with the therapy. I do also use it to check compliance. Yes, yes. (laughs) Rachel, I wanted to go back. You said the fractionated isoenzyme. So you're talking about alkaline phosphatase. It can come from different places. Can you explain quickly? And and then I want to jump back to what Dan was just saying. Sure. A lot of times you'll see on labs that the alkaline phosphatase is enzyme enzyme is elevated, but you don't know the source of it. So by being able to fractionate it, you can point your further work up. Is it related to the liver or is it actually bone? Um, part of the diagnosis of Paget's disease of the bone is in the setting of an isolated, ele- elevated bone alkaline phosphatase. And that's how I've picked up Paget's disease on patients, by further fractionating that out. And just to piggyback on that, uh, I would have primary care physicians and other physicians check with their lab to find out what's most sensitive, the fractionation or a specific bone alkaline phosphatase that can be done individually. And that's, that's a lab-to-lab variability. Okay. I, wanna, I, I do want to talk about calcium and vitamin D because that's still controversial, at least in my mind. Uh, we, we talked a little bit about the bone density doesn't change patients on therapy. Is that, a, is that success? And, and what does success look like on therapy? For me, success is quality of life. Success is no fracture. And we know that the medications um, are very good at reducing the risk, but they do not eliminate fracture. And so oftentimes patients will come to us and say, I fell and I fractured, the drug may not be working. Um, but that doesn't mean the drug was not successful. In our treatment, uh, we tend to focus on the treatment arm, the medication arm, which would be calcium and vitamin D and bisphosphonates. But there's also a huge 
a trauma resistance or trauma prevention arm. So a fracture will not occur unless there's some sort of tension or strain to overcome the strength of the bone, and that's usually with falling or trauma. So 90% of all hip fractures are related to falls. And so um, I think I skirted your question a little bit. I'd like to come back to that. But uh, it is important that calcium and vitamin D are necessary for bone health. Uh, obviously, calcium is a mineral, and that helps the bone mineral density. Vitamin D helps absorb that across the gut and lock it into bone. But that will help reduce fracture risk by about 10%. Medications, somewhere between you know, 40 to 50% at, at uh, long bones and 70% at the spine. I Just to piggyback off what you were saying, as far as actually looking on the bone density scan on treatment, I think it depends on what treatment you're on. Certainly, you're going to have a more robust response with BMD on anabolic therapy. However, what we're actually looking for is, as Dan said, which is that fracture. Certainly, if you have a patient that is on an anti-resorptive treatment or an anabolic therapy and you see that they're declining on BMD, despite a course of treatment, you have to reevaluate and say, what's the issue going on? Are they not taking the medication? Or is there a reason at this point to consider switching to a different form of treatment? And just to tell your audience, if I may just jump in, that uh, since I'm a little bit uh, older than Rachel, I've, I now remember the question. <laughs> and, and so when bone mineral density does not change, there's still fracture risk reduction. And that has to do with things that the bone density doesn't pick up, and that's that microarchitectural change. That's where that CTX, again, be- can come in very handily because if the CTX marker falls by about 40%, that shows drug effectiveness. Some drugs will drop at 80%, 90%, some 45%. But it looks like if we can drop at 40%, that's effective therapy. And even if the bone density doesn't change, patients do have fracture protection which is an important point on counseling patients. Patients always want to know if they're improving, right? If they're improving on a treatment, and especially with bisphosphonates, you may see stability, which is a sign of overall still fracture reduction. Um, So it's important that what your goal is for a patient is actually communicated to them. So for our patient that we started with, it was like a 66-year-old postmenopausal. Let's say she was in the treatment range. We put her on treatment. She her bone density is stable. She's on alendronate. She comes to the office. What is my bone density better? I tell her, no, it's, it's stable. I check a C-telopeptide and I say, this is good news. It's come down by 40%. That tells me that we're suppressing this um, bone resorption. So we're, we're doing well. Is, is, is that kind of a fair summary of things? I'd like to see her bone density scan. You told me it was stable, but I'd, I'd like to take a look. I'd like to look at the images of her lumbar spine. Maybe she has a little bit of arthritis that's now getting worse, so that's actually going to underestimate right. the severity of her um, bone disease. Or there may be a lot of discrepancies on bone density scan that you don't see if you're just getting a summary of yeah. that report. And ACE is actually coming out with a position statement on bone density testing. And approximately about 40% of bone density scans, the reports are actually erroneous. There are, there are inaccuracies in it. So I would strongly encourage you to actually take a look at your own bone density scan. Ooh, that's, that's going to be a tall order, I'll <laughs> tell you that. But I, it sounds, I, I look at my own x-rays, I, at CT scans and things, so... Matthew, if I could just come back to that question as well. So the patient who has a stable bone mineral density, the ronibus phosphate, the CTX has come down. I, I do tell them that the drug is working, it is stable, but then I go back to what Rachel said about the risk. If they're stable in an osteoporosis range and they're getting older and their risk of fall is higher, 
um, if if I check them again in the year and it continues to be stable over time, I may want to think about other agents to give that person to raise their bone density as they get older into that fall risk category, which puts them at a higher risk of fracture. Can, can you tell us, you, you mentioned anabolic agents, and I'm not sure that I... Uh, I, I think recombinant PTH is one of them. Is there any other anabolic agent out there? So I'd like to just briefly state the types of agents we have available for treatment of osteoporosis. So we have on the side of anti-resorptive therapy, we have oral bisphosphonates, we have intravenous oligonic acid, and we have subcutaneous denosumab, which is given every six months. Then on the side of anabolic agents, previously we only had teriperitide, uh, which was um, a PTH agonist. Recently, and this past Friday actually, a baloperitide was approved by the FDA. And so what that is is a 34-amino acid peptide, which is a potent and selective activator of the parathyroid hormone receptor type 1 signaling pathway. So basically all that means is this is another anabolic agent that's going to be on the market um, and will be available pretty soon. So that's exciting for us because the last time we had an agent approved for osteoporosis treatment was actually in 2010 when they approved denosumab. So those are the different agents we're really working with. Um, There is estrogen and raloxifene as well, but we're talking about just more of the, the patients that are higher risk. And you mentioned estrogen and raloxifene, and and can you tell us a little bit about aromatase inhibitors and how that's going to be affecting? Because I have a lot of patients that are being treated by Hemonc and Radonc. They come to me, they're on these agents, and it's not something, I'll be honest, that that I always think about. I mean, I'm still checking bone density, but I don't know that it raises an extra red flag, but I think it maybe it should. You bring up a great point. So last year in the New England Journal of Medicine, they came out with an article taking a look at patients that are on aromatase inhibitors, not just for five years, but extending it out for 10 years. And in patients with early breast cancer that are extended in aromatase inhibitor treatment, they found a reduction in contralateral breast cancer as well as a, a reduction in recurrence of breast cancer. And so that's important because you're going to be seeing more and more patients on aromatase inhibitors all of the time. Aromatase inhibitors work by inhibiting the aromatase enzyme, which converts androgens into estrogen. As a result of that low estradiol level, you're going to have a significant increased risk for bone loss as well as fractures. Despite this, we know that only one half of patients on aromatase inhibitors have a baseline bone density scan. And then when you see them again at three years, only two-thirds of them have had a follow-up bone density scan. So what does that mean? That means overall only one-third of patients that are put on aromatase inhibitors have a baseline and a follow-up bone density scan. And these are patients at high risk, actually, for fractures. And if you take a look at some of the fracture data on aromatase inhibitors, it's irrelevant of T-score. And that's a little concerning. And we need to obviously assess that a little better. But there's something going on with the structural component of bone on aromatase inhibitors that is increasing the fracture risk for these patients. I want to, the other thing that we wanted to talk about on this show, because this is still coming up, the residents and myself uh, are still confused on this one. When patients, we have a hip service, uh, patients, they come in with a broken hip. Let's say their vitamin D level is normal. It's 40. That person could potentially, in my mind, get a bisphosphonate because I don't have to replete their vitamin D first. So how do you handle that in your practice? Dan, we'll, we'll throw this question to you. It's a great question because the concern is if we decrease bone turnover, will that uh, decrease the remodeling that occurs at the fracture site? And uh, with all of the bisphosphonates and denosumab, the data shows that it does not. 
Uh, I think it's very important, as you pointed out, Matthew, though, to make sure that the patient's on adequate calcium and vitamin D first because by decreasing bone remodeling, you'll decrease uh, calcium release from bone. And so we want patients to be on adequate calcium and vitamin D. The, the, some of the guidelines are that maybe we should wait just a little bit. Uh, you know, certainly two weeks you should wait. Uh, some people say up to three months uh, before you go ahead and uh, use a bisphosphonate. But the studies have shown that even patients on bisphosphonates, if they fracture, doesn't impair healing. And Dr. Hurley, we mentioned previously um, use of anabolics potentially in this group of patients. And you know, when I think the word anabolic, I think of you know like Arnold Schwarzenegger, and he said this is a different sort of uh, thing going on. And the mechanism is interesting. Um, you'd mentioned previously how vitamin D deficiency, secondary hyperparathyroidism, is a significant problem in these in many patients. Um, and it's interesting that these anabolics, like the teriparatide and others, um, are PTH essentially analogs. And um, it's interesting how injecting PTH actually doesn't hurt the bones, but anabolically stimulates bone growth. So I don't know if you could speak to that and then the use of these agents in kind of this subset of patients like soon after fracture. Yes, thanks. So this is where our primary care physicians uh, helped us because they would identify patients with primary hyperparathyroidism that uh, many would lose bone. But on rare occasion, there were patients that had very dense bone. And we got to thinking, what could that be? And it turned out that it was indeed a parathyroid hormone. And in using the teriparatide in uh, studies, looking at the frequency of use, continuous infusion causes bone loss. Uh, Many daily injections causes bone loss. And it just turned out that one injection a day was the right formulation. And patients gain bone. Not every patient, but most patients gain bone. An anticipated average patient, 10 to 12 percent. I've seen as high as 27 percent. I've seen as low as 3 percent. But in general, it's bone forming and uh, working on uh, rebuilding bone. And and it's been shown by um, uh, what's called the high-resolution CT, uh, CT scans of the wrist as well as bone histomorphometry that actually the trabecular bone actually improves. It becomes more dense. And the, and the cortical bone, although slightly more porous, becomes thicker. Those are qualities of bone that we can't measure by bone density, but obviously the bone is much stronger because fracture risk follows uh, significantly. Rachel, what, do, what would you say? I think you bring up a very important point, which is that when you're on anabolic therapy, for example, teriparatide, you may notice a decline in the forearm, in the distal forearm, and, and that is not a sign that your treatment is not working. And then just to follow on to that, that's non-traditional with this therapy. So you mentioned CTX as going down in bisphosphonates. Would that occur also with anabolics? Actually, the, the, all the bone markers increase, so CTX will go up. But the bone formation that Rachel talked about, the bone alkaline phosphatase, seems to go up uh, as well. And it, there's an, what's called an anabolic window where uh, in the early phase of these anabolic therapies, there's more formation than resorption. The initiation of bone remodeling occurs with resorption first and brings in the bone-forming cells second. So there will be an increase in the CTX resorbing cells followed by the formation cells. And it's that anabolic window, positive balance that creates bone. Getting back to what Rachel said, it's hard to follow these patients by bone density because you may see a patient back and the bone density is not changed. And 
remember that new bone is less mineralized, and the bone density picks up mineralized bone. So the bone on histomorphometry or by high-resolution peripheral QCT scans at the wrist show more dense bone, but you may not pick it up in the bone density. So bone density is kind of a... Uh, a rough screen. Uh, we use it a lot. It's easy to obtain. It's relatively cheap, um, but it does have some limitations. I do want to comment, though, that part of the difference that we see between teriparatide, which we've had around, and a balloparatide, which was just approved, is they actually have different changes in bone turnover markers, meaning that with teriparatide, you're going to see a more robust increase in bone formation, but you're also going to see a more robust increase in bone resorption. With a balloparatide, you're going to still have that increase in bone formation, but you're going to have less increase in bone resorption. And so that's some of the speculation between how these two um, drugs are different. And that's very exciting because it brings us back to the beginning. (laughs) And that is, it's all about fracture. And so as we get to uh, observe these drugs as we move forward, the question is, uh, what will be the outcome in fractures long term? The new drug is very exciting because of the differences that Rachel pointed out, and hopefully there'll be some change in fracture over time with its use. So this patient that we've been kind of tracking through, the 66-year-old, we had put her on therapy. um, Actually, let's say we didn't put her on therapy, and she now came in with the fracture, and her vitamin D level was low. I, I think would be that, upset if she came in with a fracture, but okay. <laughs> so she comes in with a fracture. Uh, let's say her she was in the osteopenic range. She she fractures, and and then now she's in the hospital. Her vitamin D levels twenty or something. So we're going to replete her. I think that's pretty clear. Replete her, and then we'll treat her with something in eight to twelve weeks, something like that. Once her levels have come up. If her level was 45, vitamin D level, and she fractured, she, she had this osteopenic bone we knew about, but we didn't think her frax score was high enough. We can wait two weeks, you said, like two weeks up to 90 days or so before starting the bisphosphonate in that patient, rather, or can we start it at hospital discharge? Let's say it's someone with, we might not see them for six months. Uh, do we? Maybe that's not someone you should be starting on a bisphosphonate anyway, but... When when can we start it? I really want to pin down the answer because I'm still a little bit unclear. Um, the first thing I would do is exactly what you did in this patient. I would check the vitamin D. So let me just focus on it a bit because that's very important and there's still literature out there. Um, the vi- it has to do with the vitamin D assay. If I look at the vitamin D level of 20, for instance... It's a level that I just lock in on. It's 20, and if I look at the Institutes of Medicine guidelines, it says 20 to 50. That patient is sufficient by the guidelines. But then we think about the variability of the test. You know, how how easily can I tie my tie the same way, park the car in the exact same tracks? It's hard to do, and the same thing with vitamin D. So there's a variability of the assay. Uh, there's guidelines now to try to standardize assays within 10% variability, so that if you had a patient with a vitamin D level of 30, if an assay is within 10%, that means the true value can be anywhere from about 24 to 36. If the value is 20, the true value is going to be somewhere between 16 and 24. And so the guideline or the recommendation is now to shoot for the upper limit of the Institutes of Medicine, the 30 to 50 range, so that you can ensure that the patient has adequate vitamin D. Uh, Dr. Binkley, recently who was in our workshop, uh, reviewed stored serum from a study he did in Hawaiian surfers that had 
It'd be a great study to do in January if you're from Wisconsin, where he is. Uh, and I'll have to ask him when he did that study. Mm. But he, he reviewed the blood tests from that study that showed that Hawaiian surfers had levels from 26 to 67. And when he reassessed it recently against the 10% standard variability, his initial assay was 12% off. And so the goal is to shoot for the for a vitamin D level that's in the higher institutes of medicine range. So for the patient who had a 45 vitamin D, I would not hesitate to start vitamin D. I'd probably give the prescription and say, uh, you know, after a period of two weeks, four weeks, you could start as long as you're taking adequate calcium. Uh, there's no rush to it, I would say. Most fractures occur with trauma. But if there was a patient with 20, I would give vitamin D and calcium and wait uh, at least a month because the half-life of vitamin D is a month and it would take a long time to work that level up. One study Dr. Binkley pointed out in his presentation is that if you check a vitamin D level on a patient the day before they fracture, you'll find that in the hospital that vitamin D level can be 20 points lower and he didn't have a reason for that. But I think it's interesting because you may not be able to rely on that vitamin D level in the hospital. And out of a rule of thumb, you know, if you've got cholecalciferol or ergocalciferol to prescribe, how much should we prescribe to try and push it? Like, let's say their vitamin 25-hydroxy vitamin D level is 20. Um, how, how much should I prescribe to try and get it to, like, say, 40 or 45? So in general, this is just a rough rule of thumb, uh, 1,000 milligrams will raise the vitamin D level about 10, 5 to 10 nanograms per milliliter. So the patient who's 20, you want to get to 40, probably would use 2,000. The standard treatment, however, if you would pool most of the residents that are in training, would be to give 50,000 units once a week for seven weeks. And uh, that would be like saying go out in the sun you know, once a week, every <laughs> the first week of every month for seven months. So uh, we don't really know what is the best way to give. Uh, I've done both larger doses to work someone up. Uh, to, I should repeat that and say I've given larger doses to get the vitamin D level up more quickly when I wanted to start a bisphosphonate. But if it was an urgent, an urgent situation, I would give the 2,000 units and just give it on a daily basis. There's some data that if you give super doses of vitamin D, a half a million, 500,000, that there's some increased risk of fracture. Very limited data but uh, as Dr. Binkley pointed out, if you go out in the sun, you don't get 50,000 units. You get a smaller amount, 1 to 2,000 maybe. And so there may be some reason for that. And uh, if there's not an urgency, I tend to go with a maintenance dose. However, there's always instances where I have given a larger treatment dose and then coming in with a maintenance dose. One of the things the residents forget about is that maintenance dose. Rachel, what, how do you treat I agree. I wanted to point out about calcium supplementation. I have all my patients take a look at what they're getting in their daily intake. If they're able to get 1,000 milligrams to 1,200 milligrams per day in their diet, I'm content. However, you have a lot of patients that really have low calcium intakes for a whole host of reasons. And those are the patients you do want to ensure that they're actually taking supplementation. So I give all my patients a list of foods than the amount of calcium that are actually in the foods naturally. Did you make that list yourself, or is that, is that a link somewhere we can share with our uh, I can audience? certainly give that to you. Okay, that would be great. And if physicians check with their education department, there's probably a brochure on uh, foods that, uh, the calcium content of foods. It's fairly uh, readily available online, and it's probably in most uh, institutions' education department. I would like to point out we do have an osteoporosis app 
that anybody can download for free, and it gives a lot of the advice regarding treatment and algorithms so that it can um, help with your management of the patient that's actually in your office. Uh, like like Dr. Colburn's uh, diabetes app for ACE, which is very good. So I haven't checked Not out mine. the... I just promote it. Yeah, well, you promote it, yes. So <laughs> exactly, very similar. Mm-hmm. We've, we've promoted that one on the show before, and so we, we will check that out. Uh, I like the company that... Whatever company y'all use, if it's the same one, they do a great job of making these visual... Uh, algorithms, which are really helpful. Um, I agree. Thank you. Could I make one comment of calcium? Um, I think we're moving back the pendulum to obtaining calcium through the diet because there's so many things, for instance, in dairy that is not in a calcium carbonate pill. There's vitamin A, there's uh, phosphorus, there's protein, things that are very important to bone as well as overall health for patients as they get older. And so we would use a calcium supplement if someone could not meet that 1,000 for women or 1,200 for men milligram per day calcium through the diet. And one of the other things that Dr. Binkley pointed out is that he's gone back to using calcium phosphate. It's an older agent. But if you think about it, calcium carbonate binds up phosphorus, and that's what older patients sometimes need. So I like, I like his approach. I, I'd be remiss if I didn't say uh, one of our co-hosts who's not here, Dr. Brigham, is always, he's always talking about calcium citrate. A lot of patients are on proton pump inhibitors, and calcium carbonate supposedly may not be well absorbed. Calcium citrate is a potential way around that, I'm told. Is that something that you all follow as well? Not Entirely. The, 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 what you say is true. Um, and so I refer back to studies looking at uh, patient populations from the Middle East uh, and around the Mediterranean that oftentimes are achlorhydric. And so when calcium carbonate is given to those individuals, they do not absorb calcium when given without food. But when, calci- when calcium carbonate is given to those same individuals that are achlorhydric at mealtime, it's, absor- it's absorbed just as well as if they didn't have achlorhydria. So the key to calcium carbonate is to give it with meals because there's enough acid in the meals to, to bring the calcium into solution. The stomach will break it down into particle disintegration, but then it has to go into dissolution, and that requires acid. So a proton pump inhibitor, they can take the calcium carbonate, similar to those with achlorhydria, but it has to be with meals. The, the, the advantage of the carbonate is it's just so widely available, it's a smaller pill. Uh, But for those that like citrate, um, they can take that with or without food. I'm going to do a time check here and see. Okay, so it looks like we got to let you all go. Um, I will ask you each for maybe one or two favorite take-home points for the audience, and I I thank you so much for your time. This is really helpful. Uh, Our audience will love this. I can can tell you that. Rachel, can can you give us your take-home points? I'm very appreciative of internal medicine doctors concentrating on the bone, and I would urge you to have bone density scans and to assess your fracture risk of your patients because I think it's one of the best things you could do in terms of their quality of life and helping them really in the future in terms of preventing a fracture because you see them regularly. We only see them in bits and pieces. And the second take-home point is one appreciation of our colleagues again and to check a bone mineral density. Okay. <laughs> I, would, I would like to give a quick plug for the ACE osteoporosis guidelines, which we've presented before, and specifically there's, there's some graphs and charts at the end which kind of compare your, uh, your risk of one of these bad outcomes like osteonecrosis of the jaw to being struck by lightning and things like that. Visually, that I f- have found helpful when you show that to patients. Well, thank you both for your time. I, I hope you had a good time on we the did. show. We did. Thank you. It's been <laughs> a pleasure. You. Okay. And we're back. Hi. Wait. 
Stuart, you're always so excited when we come back from the interview. I know. No judgment. No judgment. You just you just give such an enthusiastic hello. No Amped fair. up from the knowledge food. Paul, <laughs> I, Paul, I wish I could say the same for you. <laughs> Listen, can we talk about something up top here? Um, I just... I, I, I've never seen an expert sort of establish their credentials so impressively and then say you look like Adam Levine and then therefore <laughs> demolish their credentials almost immediately. So it's really, I'm sure they know about osteoporosis, but the Adam Levine stuff, I mean, I just recently saw you in person and not much has changed since I last saw you and you look nothing like him. I was more hmm. shocked than anyone. And uh, it was actually the expert that said that was Dr. Colburn. So I, I think this is just more. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, Why did Col- <laughs> I'm not surprised. I think, I think he's just jealous that, that you have hair and he doesn't. I think I think Paul just Dr. Colburn gave me a compliment and Paul just is just jealous. That's all. I just <laughs> hated the compliment. <laughs> Why Adam Levine? I, I, I don't understand that. Uh, I, I don't know. I, I, I don't understand it either. I do not claim to look like Adam Levine, but uh, if I did, that would be, uh, you know, that wouldn't be the worst thing in the world. It's probably the sweet, sweet pets, I would imagine. Yeah. Well, yeah. The, the, I, I think the big thing we should talk about here, following the episode, uh, the ACP released their guidelines on osteoporosis, which differed a little bit from the ACE guidelines. And uh, the, the big the big difference or one of the biggest differences that will affect us and our audience is they, the ACP guidelines say for the first five years, you have someone on treatment for osteoporosis. You don't need to check bone mineral density. They said that that's low. That's a weak recommendation based on low quality evidence. And And go on. I was going to say, according to essentially what was said just a few minutes ago, that that seems to be because um, if you truly want to follow the bone turnover, you should check a CT lipeptide. Isn't that correct? Yeah, I, I think. Okay. And, and because, you know, that's going to tell you the, the telopeptide, the bone turnover marker is going to tell you what's going on at the uh, at the kind of like the cellular level, I guess, you say cellular level. But your the DEXA is not going to pick up like the micro architecture changes that Dr. Hurley was kind of pointing out occur when you're on therapy. So I, I think that's why. But... I, I did How much reach- does that test cost? Yeah, I'm looking at it here. I mean, I, I, I see $250, but I wasn't sure if that was correct or not. I mean, if you just do a Google search for it, there's uh, a life extension test that you can order for $250. But I wasn't sure if that's what it, it costs our, our uh, mm-hmm. insurers. I, I don't know. Yeah, so I, I would encourage the audience to kind of investigate at your institution, you know, what that what that test is going to cost you. But I mean, if you're trying to prevent a fracture, certainly if you're trying to prevent a fracture and assess whether or not the therapy you're giving is working or the patient is compliant and, and that's your best test to do it, then it might be worth, it might be worth checking. And I, I did reach out to Dr. To, to Rachel and Dan as they wanted me to call them. And they, they did say, you know, they, they pointed me to a document, which I'll link in the show notes, but, but ACE did give a formal reply and they did stick by they they recommend checking bone density every one to two years while on therapy. So I think that's probably enough said about that there. Uh, another main difference was the ACP guidelines really just recommend the use of the bisphosphonates and denosumab. They don't really mention using uh, teriparatide or raloxifene. Um, they're not they're not giving a strong recommendation f- for those agents. Now why is that? Why do you think that is? I think, do you think it's all 
cost effectiveness or? Well, they, they, I mean, they, they included a table in the ACP guidelines and they say that basically raloxifene um, has been shown to prevent uh, ver- decreased vertebral fractures, but not necessarily have an effect on hip or non-vertebral fractures. Uh, same, and, and teriparatide kind of has unknown effect according to this table at the hips. So I don't know. I mean, that's, that, that's kind of what I was thinking. And, um, they're, they, they also said just, just to differentiate between the bisphosphonates, ebandronate was not given a, a strong recommendation, uh, by ACP. And that the reason there is because it's, it can prevent vertebral fractures, but not, it's kind of uncertain benefit for non-vertebral or hip fractures. So (laughs) They, or if it has anything to do with compliance, though. Whenever I put a patient on on abandonate, I, I tend to have poor compliance. Like, oh yes, I forgot to take it this month. Yes. Well, <laughs> so resedronate. They they just recommend using resedronate or or uh, alendronate if you're using the oral bisphosphonates or right. or uh, zoledronic acid for your for your IV therapy. Yeah, I'm I'm a I'm a huge fan of zoledronic acid because as far as compliance is concerned, I know that my patient got it. Yeah. Um, Paul, anything else that you wanted to point out here? I think uh, it doesn't necessarily have to be the ACP versus ACE stuff, which is uh, which we've kind of talked about. Please do, please (laughs) do, please, please, please stir the pot a little bit more. I I intend to stoke no fires at all. Um, But this is—I don't want to say it was throwaway, but I actually just the little clinical pearl of a thousand units of vitamin D repletion. You can sort of ballpark that you would expect it to raise um, the vitamin D levels by ten. I I just. I'd never actually heard that before, and I thought it was actually a really helpful thing that I will I'm certainly impart to the residents too. So I, I sort of like that little pro tip thrown in towards the end of the talk. Yeah, and and, and just just for for transparency, a thousand units. How often? It's a thousand units daily. Just making sure that you. Not we're speaking. Thanks for keeping English. me on a straight and narrow, sir. Not a problem. That's what I do. Straight and narrow. Yeah, I I usually give uh, what since we talked with Dr. Camacho Stewart, I'm not sure what you've been doing, but I've been asking patients, would you rather take the vitamin D once a day, or you know, or do you want to take? Mm. It depends on if I'm repleting, repleting, or if I'm putting them on maintenance. But if I'm, if right. let's say I'm putting them on maintenance, I'll say, do you want to take a daily pill, or do you think you could remember to take fifty thousand of vitamin D once a month? And I'll kind of give them the option. Mm-hmm. Um, Sort of the same thing for repletion. Like, do you want to take a daily pill or do you want to take a weekly pill and, and see what they want? Um, because it seems like uh, at least the folks from ACE that we've talked to are not as concerned about the the high dose. There was the one study Dr. Hurley talked about with the half a million of vitamin D. That did sh- seem to sh- cause increased falls. And then there was a study in January of 16 in like jamming. You love that study. Well, the, I, I mean, it just, it had fall risk. Uh, there has been two studies with fall risk with the high dose. So I wasn't using it for a while, but the endocrinologists that we've talked to, no one's really been that worried about, uh, you know, about, about avoiding those agents. So I've just continued to right. use them. Right. Yeah. yeah. I, I, I really haven't changed my practice too much because I was already using 50,000 units monthly, for uh, maintenance therapy for a lot of my patients, and mainly because of pill burden. So when my patients are taking, you know, ten pills a day, adding additional cholecalciferol, which at our institution would be two tablets three times a day, it's just insane. Yeah, yeah, good point. The polypharmacy thing. So that that's a, a yeah, that's a good reason to do the once a month. Good tiebreaker for for the audience. Yeah. And cost. I think it's just cheaper to do the once monthly too. Mm-hmm. I'd have to look at the actual cost for co- for coli versus 
you know, like a, a daily uh, calciferol. And correct me I if know. I'm wrong, but I, I think I'm hearing a cat, and I don't know if that's Stuart's or Paul's cat, but I think, once again, a cat is going to get the last word on the show before <laughs> the outro. He, he won't shut up. <laughs> that's not Paul. That's the cat. <laughs> maybe, maybe, feed, maybe feed that thing once in a while, Stuart. I don't have cats, no. but... That's that's not what it is. You don't have cats, so you don't you don't understand. Okay. <laughs> is it like a South Park catnip type type situation or something? No, or? no. He 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 won't leave me alone unless he's like right in my face. He's got to be right there well, all the sure, time. Well, so you can blame him. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and it could be because he's probably hungry too. Okay. All right. This has Wait. been. Well, I'm sorry. Are we done? I think so, yeah. <laughs> okay. I wasn't sure. <laughs> I kind of got lost there for a second. <laughs> uh, unless you have something else for the audience, I was going to read the outro. So this is, this has been a rather rather long episode. Okay. It has been another episode of the Curbsiders. You could follow us. Oh, just kidding. You can take it. <laughs> <laughs> Bringing you a little knowledge food for your brain hole. You can find Yummy. <laughs> you can find show notes along with links to any articles, books, websites, or apps mentioned on the show at thecurbsiders.com forward slash podcast. You can also sign up to receive our monthly video newsletter summarizing key tools, tips, and tricks for your practice. The most recent one should be less uh, it was a little brighter. I tried to I recorded it outside. Stuart uh, hopefully will be available for the next one. Maybe even Paul. Who knows? Maybe even one. Available. Of Paul, maybe even one of Paul's cats or Stuart's cats. Anyway, <laughs> please continue to send us your feedback. Uh, rate us on iTunes. Send an email to the curbsiders at gmail.com and follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and on Twitter at the curbsiders. Until next time, I've been Dr. Matthew Frank Watto, and I'm Dr. Stuart Kent. Brigham. And good night. And I remain Dr. Paul Nelson Williams. Good night. Good night, Nelson. Good night. So I think if you cut out the 10 minutes of uh, me trying to record the, uh, you know, the, the intro, <laughs> we should be okay. You should probably just keep all 10 minutes in. Maybe. The audience, I'm sure the audience will love it. <laughs>